Some of us found that hymn harder to sing than others. Blessed be your name. That comes from Job chapter 1. After the Lord had taken away his children and devastated his life, the Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Some of you find that incredibly hard to say that right here this morning. Matt Redman wrote that after the death of his son. Blessed be your name. Sometimes it's easy to say it. Sometimes it's pretty near impossible to say it. But by God's grace, maybe we'll be able to say it. Whatever we're going through, blessed be your name. Let's pray. Give us the grace, whatever we're going through, on the road marked with suffering to say, with Job of old, the innocent sufferer, blessed be your name. Because he points us to the ultimate innocent sufferer, (coughs) the Lord Jesus, who on the night he was betrayed chose to say, blessed be your name. Minister to us from your word now, Father, uh, so that you get all the glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Just a bit of announcement beforehand. Thank you so much, by the way, for your prayers for the elders and deacons. We had an elders and deacons uh, meeting briefly yesterday morning. The primary focus was how we feel the Lord is leading us with regard to the pastorate. We've, uh, <clears throat> we believe God, by God's grace we've completed what I've called the exploration phase where we've had a number of visiting speakers we're now moving into the consideration phase, which is exclusive between... Uh, the, we, we've said as, the, as leaders, we won't talk to any other man, and we ask the man and his family not to talk to other churches about positions uh, you know, in this church. So we're moving to that exclusive phase. <clears throat> if you want to know more, come to the prayer meeting on Wednesday. Uh, I'll be sending a letter out as well uh, tomorrow morning or, or Tuesday morning just to uh, give you the name so that you can pray more focusly and particularly. If you want to know the name afterwards, talk to me and I might let you know. Okay. We're taking a one-off this morning and it's from Acts chapter 17, the passage that Phil read to us. Um, I want to use it as a bridge between uh, when we finished Matthew's gospel last week and when we're going to to rejoin 1 Timothy next Sunday morning, God willing. And this is a bridge that really, I think, flows out of... um, our commitment to and our worship of the risen Christ. So you'll see that phrase that I've jotted down. I think that's, I think, the heart of Acts uh, 17, indeed all of Paul's missionary journeys, of church planting missionary journeys, as they apply to us. I think this is what it means. God has placed us, Flitic Baptist Church, in his commun- as his community, we are his community, we are God's community, he made us. The gospel doesn't just save us individually, it puts us together as a saved community of believing people. He's, this is God's community and he's placed us in this community to reach this community with a gospel that makes us his community. That sounds a bit wordy, doesn't it? <clears throat> he's made us a community saved by grace so that we reach the community he's placed us in, so that they too might get saved by grace. So as we look at the community that God has placed us in, we need to ask ourselves some questions. What do we see 
How do we feel? What must we do? And then what will God do? What do we see? How do we feel? What must we do? What will God do? These questions arise from the passage that was read to us in Acts 17. So if you do have your Bibles, turn back to that passage. Uh, so we spend some time this morning look at it. And I th- as I say, it flows naturally out of the Great Commission that we looked at last Sunday evening where we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. I don't think that we are called to celebrate the death, burial and resurrection of the Son of God only once a year. I think the outpouring of that, the natural expression of that is seen as we celebrate the death, resurrection of the Son of God every day, supremely by us reaching out with the gospel into the community in which God has placed us. That's how we celebrate the death and resurrection, not just as a church community behind closed doors, as wonderful as that is, but by living out the implications of that in the world in which he's placed us. So let's work through the passage and think about what do we see. Paul was in Athens at this time, uh, and if you're tracking in uh, Acts 17, you'll see that he started off in Thessalonica. Um, they turned on him, and they, <laughs> there, was a, there was a problem there. There was a riot there. He then moved on to Berea, and then that, that went well. And then immediately there was a problem uh, in Berea because some of the Thessalonians came along and stirred up trouble for him. So they left. Paul went on ahead of the, uh, Silas and Timothy, And went on to Athens. So when we read in verse 16, while Paul was waiting for them, he was waiting for Silas and Timothy to join him in Athens and continue on their church planting mission. The next port of call is Corinth, which we come to in chapter 18. So here he is in Athens. He's just left Berea. He's going the next port of call is Corinth. So he finds and spends some time in Athens. So what did he see? He saw a socially diverse community. If you just scan down verses 17 through 20, we, we, we recognize there that it's quite a multicultural society that he sees. It's very socially diverse. He's, there's Jews who worship there. There are also God-fearing Greeks. In the marketplace, he would come across, as you would expect, what I'm calling Joe Public, Mr. and Mrs. Everybody. There are philosophers, so it's, it's a place of academic excellence. There's Athenians, natural people who were born in Athens, but there's also foreigners. So what we see, just straight off the bat there, first century Athens was a multicultural, socially, ethnically, financially, and educationally diverse community. It was a very, very multicultural, diverse community. In fact, very, very much like our 21st century communities today. It's true to say that the church's mission in the 21st century is more akin to what the church's mission was in the 1st century than it has been in previous centuries. We are living in a post-Christianized culture, which is very, very similar and socially diverse to first century Athens. He saw a socially diverse community, but also verse 17 and verses 22-23, he saw a spiritually deceived community. They were literally full of idols. That's what it says when in verse uh, 16, he was greatly distressed to see that their city was full of idols. 16, pardon me, not 17. 
And he also noticed what he says in verse 22-23, which is the start of his speech in the Areopagus, which we'll come back to. He found that it was not only an idolatrous city, but it was an agnostic city. Where do you get agnostic from, Cain? Where do you get agnostic from, from these verses? The answer is, to an unknown God. Unknown means agnos. Agnos God, unknown God. And so you are ignorant, that's the word we get agnostic from. They're an idolatrous, agnostic, spiritually deceived community. Very religious, that's what he says. I walked around, I found you, you were very religious. There were multiple choice objects of worship, which means they had, that objects of worship phrase means they had respect for the multiple chosen deities that were available in Athens. And they were also very superstitious, not just had respect for, like I respect the, the, the deity that you worship and you respect the deity that I worship, but there's also quite a high level of superstition that goes along with it. Things like, for example, a worldview that touching wood or crossing your fingers will bring you good luck. That somehow the act of touching wood or crossing your fingers somehow influences the universe in your favour. We would never do that, would we? Or a worldview that your fate and your fortune is written in the stars. Or a worldview that says what goes around comes around. Or karma. Or, as you'll see in, in um, there were Epicurean, look at verse 18, there are a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers that began to debate with him. There were two prevailing philosophies that operated in the world at that time, apart from Christianity and Judaism. There was the Stoic worldview, that's what the Stoic philosophers uh, are, meant, are highlighting here, We'll come to the Epicureans in a moment. Or well, the Stoic worldview, which basically, in a nutshell, teaches that self-control and fortitude is the way of overcoming self-destructive emotions such as grief and despair. You detach yourself from your negative emotions and you look at them and you realise that they're not part of you really. They're detached from you because you don't have a real self and, the, and the uni- you're going to make yourself one with the universe. Really? By the way, mindfulness is the, has Buddhist roots, but that's an equivalent type of worldview. The way you overcome your self-destructive emotions, such as grief and despair, is self-control and fortitude and detachment from them. That's Stoicism. And it's alive and well in the UK. Or Epicurean worldview that teaches that the greatest good is pleasure. Therefore, you should devote your lives to the pursuit of personal happiness so that you can live free from the fears of religious superstition. Grin and bear it. Make yourself happy. They're the two philosophies that dominate Athens at this time, and they dominate our world at this time as well. So when we look at Flittick, when we look at the community in which we serve, be it Amptil, Malden, Flittick, and the surrounding areas, what do we see? 
Well, I suggest we see pretty much a mirror of what we see in Athens. We are a socially diverse community. By the way, if you, if you are at all nerdy and you like looking at Wikipedia, you can find out, if you put Flitic into Wikipedia, we are a growing community that started as a small hamlet on the River Flit. There is a river called the Flit. And it's, we are mentioned, would you know it, fame at last, we're mentioned in the Doomsday Book that was written in 1086. There you go. Got a bit of history. And we've grown to become a small town that's located... Uh, mid-distance between Luton and Bedford, with a population, uh, according to the 2011 census, of 13,000. I think that's grown considerably since then. When the next census comes out, we'll find out exactly how many. And also, I think we're a socially diverse community. There are multiple cultures represented. Just within this room, there are multiple cultures represented. We are a socially, uh, ethnically diverse community. But also, I would suggest that we're a spiritually deceived community. Beyond the survey, beyond the census, and beyond our busy lives and Tesco's, what do we actually see spiritually? As Christians who love the Lord Jesus, what do we actually see? I suggest that if we look through the eyes of Christ, as Paul was doing, we would see ultimately the same false worldviews that Paul saw in in first century Athens. Every year... At the Rufus Centre, there is a Mind, Body and Soul annual fair. We also do we not see, we bump into people who are desperately trying to keep, desperately trying hard just to keep young and beautiful image. We see people, do we not, striving to climb the career ladder, working 60 plus hours a week. We see people devoted to pleasure, trying to medicate away the fear of death. We see people just trying to hold it together to get through another day. We we see people addicted to their pleasures and treasures who are desperately trying to find some way to break free of all of their hurts and all of their brokenness. So when we look at the community in which God has placed us, what do we see? The next question the text asks us to think about is how do we feel? What distresses you, by the way? Just think about that question. What really distresses you? Let me ask it a slightly different way. What distresses you about our community? What distresses you about the community in which God has placed us to live? Is it you can't find a car parking space in Tesco's? Is it, is it um, that sometimes the traffic is just crazy? They can't get through the place. Is it because they're putting houses up, but there's no more infrastructure to support the growing community? The doctor's surgeries can't take on any more new patients. They're at capacity. The schools. Oh, it's good news, by the way. There's possibly an oldie going to be built to actually counteract Tesco's. Is what distresses you about the community that we live in? What distresses you about the nation we live in? Let me ask the question slightly differently. Does seeing people who are made in God's image and who he has made to experience his glory and his beauty and his joy as you do, and at the same time who are so spiritually deceived and are facing the greatest danger and the greatest distress, does seeing them distress you 
If so, praise God. That is a gift of the Spirit. The distress that Paul feels is a spirit-wrought distress. That's how he felt. Look at verse 16. While Paul was still waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that their city was full of idols. He felt deeply provoked in his spirit. The sight of these image-bearers of God and and those who who are loved by God being so deceived and so devoted to man-made gods and false worldviews, he couldn't bear it. He had to do something. By the way, just imagine, I hope this doesn't happen. How would you feel if you saw a car crash on the way home and you saw people, parents, children, trapped and injured and dying and you saw a horrendous car crash? How would you feel? You would feel, I would suggest, greatly distressed. It does, doesn't it? It does something in your gut. It just kicks you in and you want to... You feel so moved, you would want to do something. Of course you would. My prayer is the Lord would give me and us eyes to see people as he sees them and hearts that are moved with compassion like his for them. When Jesus saw the crowds, Matthew 9, he was moved with compassion. So when we look, what do we see? And the next question is, what must we do? Look at what Paul did. I think the passage is given to us so that we learn from the Apostle Paul. But he does, verse 17, so he reasoned in the synagogue with Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day, with those who happened to be there. In a nutshell, what Paul did, because of what he saw and how he felt, he did everything possible to take every opportunity to share Jesus with them. Let me just give you a parenthesis. This is, this is, a, this is a by the way thing. I just want to give you a by the way. If, if you're a Bible student, um, you may have heard this. If you haven't heard this, you're going to hear this, then I'm going to put it up and shoot it down. There is a, there is a teaching that takes what, Paul, what happened in Athens here, the way that Paul preached the gospel in Athens, that he soft-pedaled on the death and resurrection of Christ. Because they get that because they said when he got to Corinth, he repented of the shortcomings of his mission in Athens. That's why it says, for example, in chapter 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So they're basically saying, Paul didn't in Athens preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. Wrong, he did. He absolutely did. Straight off the bat, look at verse 18. They said this. What did they say? Look at verse 18. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. Explanation. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. He was clearly preaching the cross and resurrection in Athens. He determined to know nothing while he was in Athens except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He didn't have to modify his strategy when he got to Corinth. And also look at verse 31 and 32. 
This is Paul speaking, for he had been set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. So he is sharing the death, burial and resurrection of the Son of God with the people of Athens. But notice how he did it. How did Paul share Jesus with the community that he was in? And how can we model what Paul did? Because I think it's set here for our example. This is exemplary teaching. It's for us to, to see what he did and by God's grace emulate what he did. Look at the where and the when. First of all in verse 17. Where is he? Look at verse 17. Where is he? Someone shout it out so I know you're with me. Pardon me? Synagogue. synagogue. Who's in the synagogue with him? Jews and God-fearing Greeks. What day is he in the synagogue? On the Sabbath. So he's going to church on Sunday and he's sharing Jesus with people who go to church on Sunday. Amen, so should we. Right? Where is he also in verse 17? In the marketplace. When's he in the marketplace? Day by day. Who's there in the marketplace? Anyone who happened to be there. Where is he in verse 19? On Mars Hill. Why is he, that's Mars Hill, by the way, that's, um, you can't find that in your Bibles there, but it's the meeting of the Areopagus. Historians tell us that the Areopagus, which was basically the council meeting, this was the civil government of Athens, this was the local council, if you want to vote on Thursday, that'll come up, if you want to, so, so to the local council, he's invited to the, where they met on Mars Hill. The Areopagus is the council. We look at that in verse 32, he's 33. At that, at that, Paul left the council. He's in a meeting of the council. He's in central Athens council offices. The Areopagus. He's accepted an invitation because they've convened a meeting, the place where the ruling council meet, to discuss and debate certain matters. And he gets an opportunity to do that. So that's the where and the when. Going to church on Sundays, in the marketplace, and then a special invitation to go to the council. How he brought Jesus' death and resurrection to them. This is sermon evaluation. Okay, let's just look at Paul's sermon and evaluate his sermon. Look at verses 22 through 23 in his sermon. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, and I take this, by the way, that this would be typical. So this is the sort of things he would have been sharing, not so, probably so structured, but certainly the model that we see in his sermon would be exemplary of how he did one-to-one -one stuff as well in Costa or Tesco or in the workplace. This was exemplary. When he got an opportunity, this is how he went about it with people who had no Bible knowledge or very little Bible knowledge. Verse 22, Then Paul stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So you who are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. Notice how he started he started very respectfully. There's a huge amount of respect for these Athenians. 
He started respectfully, and he started where they were at. He found out where they were on the spiritual journey. He didn't just somehow get Jesus in the conversation from the get-go. He understood where they were at, and he started to speak to them from where they were at very, very respectfully. I see that in every way you're very religious. We need to start respectfully, don't we? Because they're image bearers of God. They might have a completely different worldview to you. They might do and say things that, you know, bring a sharp intake of breath. Shock. But that's okay. We need to have a great deal of respect for the people that we rub shoulders with in the community in which God has placed us. He starts respectfully. Also, he speaks truthfully, verses 24 through 26. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. He's speaking not only respectfully, but he's speaking truthfully. He's correcting their wrong views of God. He doesn't live in temples. And there were temples aplenty in Athens. He doesn't live in temples made by human hands. And he's not served by human hands. You're pouring your life out for these things. You've got to prop your God up on a plinth in case he might fall off. He doesn't live. That's not the God who made the world. He made you and he placed you here. You are here by God's design and plan. He puts you where you are in the space-time history that he determined. He speaks respectfully, but he, and he speaks truthfully. 27 through 28, he speaks tenderly. God did this, explanation of why God did it. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. He's speaking respectfully, he's speaking truthfully, and he's speaking tenderly. Where do I get tenderly from? Notice what he's doing. By the way, what passage of the Bible did Paul preach from in Athens? What text did Paul use for that sermon in the Areopagus? Hmm? He used to use their own writings. There was no Bible text quoted. He didn't say, now I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. But he didn't do that. There was no Bible references in his sermon. There are references to their pop stars and stand-up comedians. No, sorry, their philosophers. By the way, the equivalent of their philosophers and poets are, are they not? our stand-up comics and our pop stars and people, our musicians. What does he do? 
notice the quote. It's, it's in quotation marks in your Bible in verse 28. And he's flowing on from 27. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from any one of us. Quote from one of your own philosophers, for in him we live and move and have our being. If you're following in the 2011 NIV, that's a quote from the Cretan philosopher, I believe his name is Epimendes, who lived in the 6th to 7th century BC. There was probably a statue, there was probably a, a, you know, a, a, a head on a plinth of this bloke in the council offices. So he's quote, he might even add this quote, what he said in the council offices. So he's pointing to what they recognize from their worldview and saying, they're absolutely right. That's why God did it. As one, as, and, and the penny has dropped in this, in this Cretan philosopher Epidemus. For in him, that's what he said, we live and move and have our being. As some of your poets have said, and that's a Cilician Stoic philosopher, Ariatus, I think that's how you say his name, in 310, 240 BC, we are his offspring. Notice what he's doing. He's connecting their felt needs with God's compassion. God's compassion in verse 27. He's connecting God's compassion with their felt needs that their own philosophers and poets have expressed as he's moving to application. You, your own poets and philosophers have grabbed the fact that God is kind and good and wants a relationship with you. That's exactly right. So he's speaking respectfully, he's speaking truthfully, and he's speaking tenderly. And he's, as he moves to conclusion... He's speaking logically, verses 29 through 31. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone, by raising him from the dead. What's he doing as he moves to the conclusion of his Bible-saturated, text-free sermon, <laughs> gospel sermon? What's he doing? He's drawing out the logical conclusions from their worldview. They respect the philosophy of Epimendes. They respect the philosophy of Aristus. And he's showing them that they've touched on something, but they haven't gone quite far enough. He knows, and every one of us knows, that everyone wants a happy life. <laughs> everyone wants a future. Everyone wants hope. Everyone needs is looking for something, searching for something. What he does, he taps into what their philosophers have taught them that they believe, and says... The only way that your life will have a happy ending and a meaningful purpose is if you find Jesus, if you get connected to him. Your life will only, your, your, your deepest needs will only be met in Jesus. Your darkest fears 
will only be met and dispelled in Jesus. And he's given him to you, and he's proved that his coming a day when history will be sorted out once and for all, and the proof of that is that he will judge the world by the man he's appointed. And he's proved that to everyone by raising his son, Jesus, from the dead. It's a wonderful address to a non-Christian, non-Christianized community. Respectfully, truthfully, tenderly, and logically. May God help us to share Jesus like that. What is God doing? What is God doing? God is doing what he promised to do. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Look at verse 32, when they heard about the resurrection. Look at the mixed reaction. Some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysus, a member of the Areopagus, and a woman named Demarius, and a number of others. As Jesus shared, we'll see a typical mixed response. Some will sneer. Of course they will. (laughs) What? Yeah, dead bloke walking. Yeah, sure. Ha, 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 ha. Some will sneer. Some will want to know more, verse 32. They may even want to start coming to a Bible study. They may even want to do Christianity Explored. Some will want to know more. And some will trust Jesus and join with us. So, as we look at the community that God has placed us in, we need to ask ourselves these questions, don't we? Do we see the community in which he's placed us through Jesus' eyes? Do we feel towards this community the way that Jesus feels? And do we feel moved and motivated to share Jesus where and whenever we can? Please let me have you, if you've got any ideas, this isn't, it's not like a church base, we've got a strategy. We have a mission team. But if there's anything that you think we could do and should do as a church to be more radically relational with our communities, let me know. And we'll think about it, pray about it, and by God's grace, we'll go do it. And we will see God at work in this place. Let us pray. We thank and praise you, our God that you have placed us as your blood-bought, spirit-filled community in this community to celebrate and adore and worship and praise you. And we thank you for that. But also to share you with a community which is wonderfully diverse, but also spiritually deceived. Please, Lord, give us eyes to see people through your eyes, not just folk who take up my parking space but people that you love because they're in your image. And help us to feel the way you do towards them. And make us entrepreneurial and and risk-taking in how we share Jesus with folk. Some will sneer, some will want to know more, and by your grace, some will trust Jesus. 
we ask and pray that you'd help us to hear the call of the kingdom. For Jesus' sake, amen. amen. Lovely to stay for coffee and chat afterwards if you've got time, but we're going to stand as we're able and sing our closing song, Hear the Call.